Well, if you brought your copy of God's Word with you, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to just simply finish chapter 4 today. My, my esteemed colleague, Pastor Harkey, left me the last three verses of chapter 4. And so I thought, well, is it harder to do Daniel 11 or the last three verses of Matthew chapter 4? I'm just kidding. And because um, it sets up for us uh, the beautiful teaching, preaching ministry of Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount from chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then we see a continuation of his teaching ministry that flows into his healing ministry in 8 and 9. And we kind of have a bookend here from, from chapter 4, verse 23, and verses through verse 25. Uh, when we get to the end of that section, we're going to see a very similar statement, almost an identical statement that we see here in these verses uh, that Matthew leaves with us as well. And so Matthew is going to continue uh, in these last three verses of chapter 4, developing uh, the messianic credentials of Jesus Christ through His ministry of teaching, through His ministry of preaching, and miracles of healing. Um, Jesus' ability to do what only God had the power to do was obviously a great apologetic for Christ being the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, whose kingdom uh, was at hand, as John the Baptist had been articulating just prior to this. And it was also confirmatory, these, these miraculous powers that Jesus was expressing were confirmatory of His thus preaching and His teaching ministry. It's one thing to say the thing, it's another thing to do it. And so these miracles that were uh, being valid that were validating his teaching that he indeed was God's son, the promised Messiah, um, validated the words which he spoke, which were words of life, words that more importantly than the healing brought healing to wearied and wounded souls that would last forever. While indeed the, uh, the healing of the body is great, and Jesus did that and showed compassion to many, um, in one sense, He healed those bodies knowing that He would then keep them in a fallen world in a still sin-cursed body that needed redeeming just for a little bit longer. So without the words of life, His preaching, His teaching ministry that converted the soul, it would um, indeed not be all that significant on one hand. But if you think about this, it was Jesus Himself when He was being tempted in the wilderness. We saw this earlier in chapter 4. Um, he was obviously famished. His body had physical needs. And He says there when the tempter tempted Him of turning the stone into bread, He said, man shall not live, verse 4, on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And it's because it's the words of God that give true life. It's the words of God that truly satisfy the soul of man. Give a famished man a loaf of bread today and he'll be hungry again yet tomorrow. But when a man feasts his soul on the word of God, though he may die tomorrow from starvation, he not only continues to have life, but will have it unto all eternity. And again, I believe the same principle lies true with the miracles of healing. They, like a loaf of bread, were never intended to bring ultimate satisfaction to any person. Just temporary relief from temporal human suffering, while uh, both in the short term and in the long run would 
be of no avail if the words of life that Jesus was teaching and preaching had not impacted one's soul. If, if they don't point us to the one in whom is everlasting life, in other words, what ultimate purpose are they really serving? Jesus' ministry of feeding the hungry with loaves of bread uh, surely sustained them for at least 24 hours, but more importantly was His feeding them with His words of life. For He knew that eventually every one of them was to die a physical death, and then comes judgment. The earthly bread met an immediate need of their hunger. It took care of some physical pain, and it gave them a better capacity, if you will, to hear the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. So in feeding the body, it helped them be at rest so perhaps their spiritual eyes could be opened some to hear the good news of the preaching of the kingdom of heaven that was indeed at hand. And it seems again that the same probably was true and should be thought of as true of Jesus' healing ministry as well. Again, while, it, while the healing indeed brought comfort and hope and a promise of a better life in the here and now, if that's all it did, again, what would its ultimate purpose be? Jesus' healing ministry, while a huge blessing to the one being healed, was intended to elevate one's sense of awe beyond the mere physical, to the authority of the one releasing such power, thereby giving them a better capacity to hear the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And it was John in his gospel that said as much. He said there in John chapter 20, Verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these. And John puts a plethora of miracles that Jesus did in his gospel. But these have been written so that you may what? What were the purpose of the miracles, that, of, the, of the ones that he called out and put into his gospel? These were written that the gaze of your soul could be elevated beyond the physical to something far greater, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. John tells us that the miracles of Jesus recorded there were for very singular purposes. One, that you may believe in the promised coming of Messiah and that Jesus was Him, and that thus believing in Christ, you would have life everlasting something that the healing could not produce forever, physical healing nor physical bread. But what is salvation, after all, if not the greatest healing and feeding of the soul of all? The, the redemption of a soul that has been condemned to a domain of darkness when then freed from said domain of darkness by the very mercy of God that enabled our spiritually blind eyes to see, that is a healing that's of such magnitude that, that it's, it, it, there's nothing that quite compares. Amen? If you told me, if I was back in the day and I had a really bad arm, and you said, hey, you can either fix your arm and go to hell or fix your soul and go to heaven, where are you going? You're going to heaven. That arm's temporal. It doesn't last forever. These bodies are temporal. They're not going to last forever. You may get healed, but you're still going to die. Unless the rapture happens first. By the way, this coming Thursday, we're going to have a class in here on Thursday night on the rapture. You need to be here Thursday night at 6.30. Just a little plug for my pastor friend here, Matt Harkey. 
We're all going to die unless the rapture happens first, right? That even when Jesus raised Lazarus back from the grave, did he then live on forever and ever and unto eternity here on this earth? No, he died again. So while those things are great and they're spectacular and they're and it brings a lot of wow and a lot of attention to itself, it's to point us to something greater. It's a sign, signs of wonders and miraculous things to point us to something greater, which are the words of life that Jesus brought in his preaching. One more quote from John, from John chapter 12. He says there in verse 44 through 50, And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And this is a darkness of soul, a soul that's been burdened down with the weight of sin and condemnation and has no hope apart from the gospel. If anyone hears my sayings, he says, verse 47, and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, the sayings that have words of life, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Verse 50, I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And as such, Jesus' ministry of miracles was confirmatory and validating all that He came saying that was given Him by the Father. His teaching and His preaching, His words of life, His words that possess life unto all eternity forever and ever for whoever would consume them and dine upon them. Isn't that good news? Isn't that what the gospel is about? Life everlasting? Does anybody really want to stay here forever on this planet in the the condition that it is in? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, right there. That's right. I got a solid no, at least one. And there was a lot of probably silent no's that went up just like that. Heck no. I'm looking for a new heaven and a new earth and a king that's going to be ruling forever and ever. And, and a body that's not subject to sin and death and dying and disease and canker sores and all other kinds of abnormalities. Well, Matthew now is going to bring focus on these words and works of Jesus' ministry in a very generic way, in a very general way. He doesn't get into specificity. Now when we get to 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, he gets into more specificity. So this is kind of like his on-ramp to the specificity of the words and works of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 23, Matthew chapter 4. It says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Now that Jesus' group of disciples had begun to take shape, which we saw last week in verses 18 through through 22, Matthew here expands on that brief introduction to his Galilean ministry. We saw there in uh, 
verse 17 last week, that Jesus began from that time to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And it seems that this was in general the message, the teaching that, that would consume his teaching and his preaching ministry as, verse 23, he was going throughout all of Galilee. It's teaching, preaching, the gospel of the kingdom, the same thing, right? As he, as he was beginning, repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the need for entrance into this kingdom was through repentance and John the Baptist came preaching the same thing, a, a baptism of repentance. Why? He said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, it's important to remember, again, as we saw last week from Pastor Matt's preaching, that this area that Jesus began His ministry in is known as the, is in verse 15, you'll see it, I don't have this on the slide, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. And it was in, in the time of the Assyrian uh, Deportation 722 of, of the Jews, of the Jews there in the northern kingdom, when the Assyrians came in and brought judgment by way of God's hand against his nation because of their sinfulness, that these Jews in the northern kingdom were deported out of that region, in this region of Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And it was then that a flood of Greeks, a flood of Gentiles moved into that northern area. As a matter of fact, by the time of the New Testament, there is an area to the north that's known as Samaria, and, and the Samaritans were despised by the Jews because they were a mixture of Jew and Greek uh, ethnicities. And so they were considered the dogs, the dregs of the world, the dregs of the society from the Jewish perspective. And it's this region in which, this region in the northern regions in which Jesus um, um, initially started gathering his disciples. And it was very... Uh, telling that Isaiah himself even indicated that when Jesus came, he came to those who are in what? Great darkness. It was so bad in this region in history, the Maccabees, in Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 5 said that this region became so paganized that the remaining Jews that lived there actually were evacuated and moved into Judea. I mean, that's how uh, bad it became in terms of just the, the kind of pagan worship and the idolatrous stuff that was happening in this region of Galilee. But we also know that by the time of the New Testament, there had been movement of a Jewish community back into this region. And it seems that probably more than likely, they just filled up more of the lower region of Galilee around the Sea of Galilee, around the Lake of Galilee, again, where Jesus was doing his ministry. Now, if you think about this, this northern region of Galilee was approximately a 60 by 30 square mile area. So Back in the day when travel was by hoof or by foot, um, they didn't have motorized scooters and such, that's kind of a large uh, area to, to, to traverse through. And this is the area that it says right here that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee. So this is a rather large area. And we also know that this area was highly populated with a mixture of Jews and Greeks. And so as Pastor Matt articulated very well last week, we see that even in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what did we see? We see that He came, as it's mentioned all throughout the epistles, to the Jew first and also to the, to the Greek, to the Gentiles. And we see this formulation very early in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. But notice again in verse 23 where we see this, where Jesus went first after 
obviously teaching his disciples in this process of going throughout this Galilean region to be fishers of men, right? As they're going throughout all the regions, Jesus is teaching and preaching. These early disciples are with them, but notice where they went. Notice again, look at here at verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching where? In their synagogues. So it's Matthew is very quick to point out that Jesus first went to the Jews, teaching in their synagogues. And we're going to see later on in Matthew's gospel, this point is made very clear. The idea of to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles or the Greeks. It was the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 when he said he wasn't ashamed of the gospel, which would be the gospel of the kingdom, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus came as a Jew and went to his own people first, and as we see in verse 23, also to the Greeks. We see this very clearly also later in Matthew's Gospel when you get to chapter 10. Notice what it says, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. So here Jesus is what? He's sending out his 12. He's sending them out to do some ministry. He's been doing ministry training with them, and now he's sending them out to do some ministry. He instructs them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we see this again in Matthew 15. Verse 24, but he answered her, this is the Syrophoenician woman, and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So while Jesus did come to the Jew first, to the lost sheep of Israel first, his teaching and preaching ministry obviously landed in the hearing of all of Galilee, including both Jew and Greek Gentiles. Now, think about this. The synagogue back in the Jewish experience, it seems, came about uh, after the Babylonian captivity. Um, Prior to the Babylonian captivity, we know nothing of synagogues. Synagogues were never instructed to be established or set up. But following the destruction of Solomon's temple, which in essence left no place for the Jews to practice their faith, it seems historically that the Jewish people began to build these smaller houses of worship called synagogues as a place of worship. It was a place of study. It was a place for community fellowship. It was a place of legal activity, a place which served as public school for boys that were, that were there studying the Talmud. They would learn to read. They would learn to write. They would learn to do arithmetic. And a place where men in the community would go for advanced theological study. We know that the synagogue was a, a hub of Jewish life, and one of the greatest fears for most of the pious Jews of this day was the idea of being disbarred or disfellowshipped from this synagogue. John says as much in John chapter 12, verse 42. Notice it says, Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, the center of the Jewish culture, the center of the Jewish society and life where they would have times of fellowship again and time where they would meet and teaching and all sorts of things that would happen. So even though they were believing in Christ, they were fearful. They were fearful of being desynagogued, of being removed from the life of the community. 
And so Jesus, there in Galilee, went to those Jews. And as it says at the end of verse 23, notice, in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So he was going into the synagogues all throughout the regions of Galilee. Anywhere there was a Jewish community that got established there in the northern area, the northern part of the early part of the kingdom, where synagogues, these, these houses of worship, these houses of study were established, Jesus was going there and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was both teaching and proclaiming. Now, it's been questioned whether or not this idea of teaching here and proclaiming, which is obviously sometimes translated, your translation may say preaching here. And it seems to me that preaching and proclaiming are, are a very same activity. But the question is, is, is the teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, is this just more of a... Um, clarification of what the teaching was. He was teaching in the synagogues, and what that means was that he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Or is there a distinction here that he was both teaching in the synagogues and apart from teaching in the synagogues, he was also proclaiming, i.e. preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So the gospel of the kingdom, the message, would be the same when he was both teaching in the synagogues and out in the community, in the community life of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And it seems from my perspective, I've read commentaries that will try to take you down both directions, but it seems even in the broader context of Matthew, the greatest expression of this idea of a public proclamation, a public preaching standpoint, where Jesus was also, while he was indeed teaching in the synagogues, it says so, but there was also a preaching aspect, a proclaiming of the gospel more in an open public setting, it would seem you know you, you go no further than Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 and have the greatest expression of what that public proclamation would look like. And we call it the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that anybody could ever preach. And so we're going to get the privilege of walking through that ourselves. And so it seems that, that this teaching in their synagogues, obviously we, we see in some places in the Gospels that Jesus went in the synagogues on the Sabbath. And he taught. But it also seems in the, in the way that these synagogues were established where men could go to and have advanced training and theological studies that perhaps Jesus was brought in from time to time or showed up from time to time and even did some guest teaching in these synagogues. And when he got there, what did he say? He said, oh, you remember John the Baptist, my relative? He was in the wilderness. Remember the baptism of repentance? Yeah, and he said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then it pointed to me. And so now the big difference is, is that the king and his, who was who bringing his kingdom with him on his heels, I'm the one now presenting to you this teaching from the very word of God itself. So there was a big difference from John's teaching and Jesus' teaching or John's public proclamation and or Jesus' proclamation. And we see that Jesus was very... Uh, narrow. And were, were there other things that Jesus said? Well, yes, and we're going to see them when we walk through the gospel. But Jesus was very narrow in the message that he came teaching and preaching. As we saw earlier from John's gospel, he said that he came teaching only what the Father, what? I speak just as the Father has told me. So Jesus' message of teaching of the kingdom 
I'm going to get there right there. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This was the narrow message that the Father sent him from heaven. And he was saying, let everybody know that, this, that you are the king from heaven. You are the good news that I have sent from heaven. And you are going to be the very Lamb of God that's going to die upon the cross for the sins of the world. And in his teaching in the synagogue and in his preaching publicly, this was the message that Jesus overwhelmingly brought time after time after Time. As a matter of fact, it was the exact same message that his disciples brought when they went out as well. And it was this miracles part. Notice again the very end here of this section of teaching and proclaiming. There's another and. He was indeed doing these things and healing. So he has a kind of like a threefold ministry of going into synagogues to the Jew first. And this proclamation, you could say, and to the and to the Greek, we know that it wasn't just Jewish people that were just clamoring for the food and for the healing. There were Gentile people clamoring for that as well. And so you see also this and part, a third part of the ministry of his public ministry was the healing of every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Jesus' healing ministry was, as I said in the opening of the message, a divine verification, or you might think of it as a divine proof that everything He was saying was factually true. He came with a very simple message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm the king that's come from heaven to establish an etern- uh, this, earth, this earthly kingdom as promised from the Old Testament prophets. Oh yeah? Well, anybody could say that. Which is true, right? And there's on many occasions, Jesus says, well, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or, or pick up your pallet and walk and go home? Well, in order that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins on earth, I say pick up your pallet and go. So it's not just the saying of the thing, but the doing of the thing. Jesus validated, these miracles validated that He had authority and power as only God Himself could be a possessor of. And so all of these healings that Jesus went about doing was a, ver- a, a, a proof, a, a validation of the fact that everything He was saying about Himself was true. It testified to His divine nature. It testified to His true identity as being the long-awaited Messiah King. Who Jesus heals, how Jesus heals, and what He's able to heal, all of that points to Him as being the Son of God come in flesh. And it was for this same purpose that Jesus, when sending out His twelve disciples in their training for ministry, following His departure back to heaven until He comes again, sends them out teaching and preaching just like the Father sent Him. And He also gave them authority and power to heal every kind of disease and sickness as well. We see this later in Matthew chapter 10. So earlier we looked at verses 5 and 6, but I'm going to add verses 7 and 8 for us here now. So He sent out His twelve, instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, the way of the Samaritans, rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the Jews first. I don't know why I'm writing this. It just feels good. The Jews first. And as you go, preach, proclaiming 
the gospel of the kingdom. Same thing. It's at hand. Who? John the Baptist, Jesus, now the twelve. Has there been much change in this message that God is wanting to get out to people on planet earth? The answer is no. And notice what else he sent them with the ability to do. Heal the sick, raise the dead. This one right here always gets me. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely you give. I mean, Jesus, in sending His twelve out to do ministry, gives them authority over sickness and death for the very purpose of validating their preaching, which was the same message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we see here that He makes no distinction between sick, healing sick, cleansing lepers, and raising dead. It always gets me whenever you see something on YouTube today where somebody standing over a casket and they're shouting and screaming and all of a sudden the guy rises up out of the casket, ha! And they're like, see ya! And, it's, and they're trying to kind of reduplicate some of these ideas that was happening in real life in time when, in the time of Jesus. And um, no distinctions whatsoever. You know, we have, we will have oftentimes the... Um, the healing ministry of somebody that will come through town. <clears throat> that doesn't seem to be quite as big of a spectacle as it used to be back in the, in the 80s and 90s. I don't know, there was a lot of that going on there. But we always you know, thought, well, what about the raising of the dead part? I mean, if we, if we brought you know, my Uncle Eddie in dead and laid him up on the stage, you, you get, no distinctions made here when Jesus sent his people out, his 12... He said, this is what you're going to go and do. And this was exactly what Jesus was doing Himself. And it was all for the purpose of validating the preaching of the kingdom of heaven, a very radical message that it is indeed at hand. And we see whenever these 12 apostles continued this ministry of theirs, notice, just notice the, the similarities. After Jesus is gone, He's trained them, fish for men, go make disciples. Notice early in the book of Acts, notice the, the exact pattern that we see here that followed from the Gospels. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. So the preaching of Peter, Peter's preaching here, they heard the message of the kingdom of heaven that you crucified Jesus, the very king from heaven. And they're, in, they're, uh, they're appalled and they're, and they're saying, well, then what should we do? If we, if we killed our promised Messiah who came to establish a kingdom, then how are we going to get the kingdom established? We killed the king. They clearly seem to be a little bit baffled by that. But Peter, unfazed, he just goes right back to the message that John the Baptist came with. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. This is different. John didn't say in the name of Jesus, but now we're saying in the name of Jesus because the King has come. The King died upon the cross as the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The church has been birthed. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all who come to Christ in faith placing them, sealing them unto the day of their redemption and placing them within the body of Christ. For, he says, verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Not much has changed in our preaching, has it? 
I mean, how much is really changed? The kingdom of heaven is 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 a hand. He's come and he's coming again, and you need to be saved from a perverse generation. See, in America, we, we lived in a bubble for a long time. We're just starting to kind of get some tasting of the things that were going on in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan before God sent His people in there. The very things He said, you best not do the things that were going on in Egypt and the things that are going on in Canaan because those things are an abomination to me. We're just starting to kind of get our, our gut full of those here as, as American, this American experience of ours over the last 250 years or so. But we say the same thing. It's a perverse generation that you need to be saved from. So, verse 41, then those who had received His word were baptized. Oh, I almost had that. And what does it say? They were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They went fishing. God did some catching. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders. And signs were taking place through who? Through the apostles. Just like Jesus sent them out. He's, these twelve Jesus sent out, and He instructed them, preach, here's what you say, and here's what you do. Verse 8, same pattern. So Jesus taught them how to do it. He modeled it. He showed them, He taught them, and then He leaves, goes to heaven, and then they are sitting here doing the very ministry of teaching, preaching, and healing, just like Jesus did, and all for the validation and verification of this radical message that the King has come. Even later in Acts 5.12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord, in Solomon's portico. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said with regard to these apostles in Ephesians 2, in verse, starting in verse 18. He says, for, for through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Notice verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles... And prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone. So you've got a foundation, you've got a cornerstone, and the, 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 the cornerstone that holds all this together, the beautiful cornerstone that oftentimes has a little special touch to it, and it's the thing that brings it all together, that's Christ. You've got the Old Testament prophets that were saying things that only God could have had them saying because they came true and prophetic uh, utterances that come true, you know, could only come from God. And, and then you've got the apostles, the other part of this foundation, that are doing things that only God can do. These are things that only God can do from the prophets and the apostles. Jesus is the cornerstone. This is the foundation upon which you are being built into a household of God. And even the author of the book of Hebrews seems to confirm this kind of pattern when he says in Hebrews chapter 2, he said, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. And he's talking about this gospel of the kingdom message and of Jesus, and now of His coming again. For if the wor word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and there were words spoken through angels that were written, 
that were unalterable. Uh, the angel Gabriel, for example, showed, showed up to Zacharias and Elizabeth, and what, and what did he say? He said, your son is going to do these things. It proved unalterable. It came to pass exactly like it said. And every transgression and dis- disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So they're talking about this, these words of life, so great a salvation. After it, this message was first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God testifying with them, those who heard, those who confirmed it to them, those who brought that word to them, that apostolic ministry. And they did that by signs, wonders, and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to God's own will. So we see this this pattern kind of just played out through Scripture that Jesus established whenever He came in His teaching, preaching, and healing ministry, and then He sent His twelve out, and they started teaching, preaching, and having a healing ministry. And then through Acts, we see the same pattern. We see at the hands of the apostles, these, these miraculous signs were to affirm the message that they brought. And they were the very foundation of the church, which Christ and the good news of the coming kingdom is its cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. Amen? So it just seems very simple that, in a very generic way, you might say, that Matthew here is establishing an on-ramp for these very things, his teaching, his preaching, the miraculous. And then he's going to take the next five chapters and he's going to delineate on those things more particularly so that we can kind of look at some of those along the way and what they, and what he said and how he said it, to whom he said it, who has the words of life, who offers this free gift of salvation. And then after the, the Sermon on the Mount comes the miraculous, the validation of this message that he's been preaching. We're going to see this over and over again. And it would seem because of these realities, it's for such a reason that his ministry began to spread so quickly. We see this in verse 24. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew shows how far-reaching Jesus' teaching, preaching, and healing ministry reached and how quickly it seemed to reach these areas. His name, the fame of His name, spread well beyond the district of Galilee. It went all through Syria, and they were bringing to Him people who were sick. Can you imagine if, if a man like Jesus showed up and you get word, there's a man over in Galilee, and He's doing what only God can do. He's doing what only... And you've got a sick child, what are you going to do? You're going to pick that kid up and you're going to get going as quickly as you can. And it just seems that all sorts of people started making their way to find King Jesus. He's the one that they're talking about that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's the one we've heard that he had a relative that his name was John who showed up in the wilderness and he started preaching this. He was a strange dude, weird diet, funky clothes. Started baptizing people saying you need to repent. Repent. People were coming to him in droves 
As a matter of fact, we see in verse 25 this, this articulated, large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Large crowds. In Jesus' public ministry, he had to start kind of slipping away so that he could get some respite from the large crowds who were clamoring after his feedings, who were clamoring after his miracles. All of those things were intended to point them to something far greater than the immediacy of the meeting of a physical need. And it was the words of life that he preached. The good news part. The good news that there is one that has come that yes, he's a compassionate person. Yes, he takes care of hunger needs. And yes, he even takes care of healing body issues and needs. But listen to his words. What is he saying? Could this truly be? the one who's claiming to have come from heaven, from God Himself, and that when you see Him, you've seen God. When you hear His words, you hear the words of God. And as the eyes of their heart were being opened, as we saw earlier in Acts, I'm not going to flip back there, 3,000 were added to their number that day. Through these miraculous signs and wonders, God was confirming and affirming for people that, yes, this is my beloved Son. And then he's going to take them with these large crowds. He's going to march them all the way through the gospel. And then he's going to crucify them on the cross at Calvary. And people just a week earlier, this Jewish crowd just a week earlier is going to be clamoring after him, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A week later, crucify him. He's not really doing what we thought he was going to do. It's an amazing story, is it not? And how God has established this. But this is the simplicity of this ministry of this man Jesus. Teaching, preaching, healing, training His twelve for ministry for when He goes away. And that they turn around and what do they do? They pass it on to others. Who passes it on to others? Who pa- Well, not the apostolic authority, by the way. I didn't need to say that. They, had, they were sent directly from Jesus. They had an apostolic authority. There's this thing somewhere called apostolic secession. And somehow the Pope claims that he's the apostle, an actual apostle sent by Jesus because of apostolic secession. You don't see, any, you can't find one passage in Scripture that would exegete that position ever, anywhere. You can't. It's not there. It's kind of cut out of whole cloth. And then we even have some people in denominations today that claim that they're apostles. And, they, and as such, they have the authority that the apostles had, which was the healing of the sick and all those things. And I'm going, oh, what about the raising of the dead? Waiting on that one. No, see, they passed on the discipleship to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation. And here we are. Here we are doing what? We're doing gospel ministry where we're at here today, right? It's what we do. We are still carrying on this same teaching and preaching ministry that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what we're saying is the kingdom of heaven was like this. But then when you kind of look at it from the Old Testament perspective, there's a first coming and a second coming. We're in the gap between the two. And that was a mystery. Paul says the church age is a mystery. And so we're living in this time of this unique time in history and this mystery of the church age where we get to do this very thing. Proclaim and preach, proclaim and preach. So this is one of the reasons that you know I, I personally do not believe that there are individuals out there that have the gift of healing. I just don't. 
I do not believe that there's an individual human being who's got flesh and blood, just like I've got today, that actually has the gift of healing. Like Peter. Peter could walk, and as his shadow was falling on people who were ill, they were hopping up and walking and rising. I haven't seen one person with that capacity today. And nor do we need to have a person with that capacity today. It was for a very particular reason of validating this amazing message that showed up in the first century that this Jesus was the king from heaven. Oh, he got crucified. Well, he rose from the dead just like he said he was, and he's coming again. This crazy message that the apostles went out preaching. Yeah, he was crucified, but he was, he was risen from the dead, and he's coming again. That's insane. Dead men don't rise. No, he did. We were eyewitnesses to this, and then they had the power of God. But having said all of that, I still believe that God has the power to bring healing to anybody He wants, whenever He wants, howsoever He wants, to whomever, whenever, however, because it's God's power that accomplishes it, right? He just doesn't need the medium. He doesn't need men claiming to have apostolic succession or somebody claiming to have a gift of the Spirit that can do this. He doesn't need anybody to do this. We pray for people. Sometimes they get healed, oftentimes they don't. Sometimes they do. There was one occasion in a church, what time I got? I got a few minutes here. Church back in uh, Gainesville, young girl in the family started noticing she had this, this I'll use this side, uh, this swollen spark coming up on her jaw right here. Family went and had x-rays on it. It's a tumor. They already they died. They, we saw, they showed us. They showed everybody in church pictures. They diagrammed it. Part of it was malignant. Part of it was benign. And it was in her jaw right here. It was kind of consuming this uh, this area. And it's, I don't want to get too de- technical. So they scheduled surgery. Church prays. We're a non charismatic church. Wasn't nobody hollering and shouting and screaming over her. We just prayed. She goes into surgery. They go in, they remove the three back teeth on this side, pull them out, they go in to get the tumor. It's gone. They put the teeth back in, fix it all up, go out and tell the parents what happened. And they say, basically, you can just count your lucky stars. We have no explanation. And they said, well, we know. We serve a God who has power and can heal anytime He wants, whomever He wants, and whenever He wants. And even though in our culture He doesn't seem to do that as often as Jesus was healing people or the twelve, He can still do that. Amen, church? And this is why we pray. This is why we still pray. This is why you can call for the elders to come and pray. And we pray that God would be merciful and gracious and heal a, a broken body. And He may choose to mend that body this side of heaven or He may choose not to. Either way, who, who still gets the praise? God does. So sometimes, you know, us non-charismatics get claimed of like somehow intellectualizing the Holy Spirit out of everything. That's not true at all. We, there's full room for the Holy Spirit to do anything He wants to do. But He, is, he clearly wanted to, to do certain things through Jesus and through His twelve and the affirmation of this message, and He's not choosing to do that like that today. Just don't, we don't see it, but we do see healing. Got a good friend right here, Phil. Phil told me just two a month ago, hey, I had some, some cancer in me. He didn't tell me that previously. I didn't like that. But found out about it on that day. He went back in. They took x-rays. It was gone. And what did we do? 
said, praise Jesus. Thank you, Lord. That's what we did. Because God is in the business of doing what He wants to do, when He wants to do it, and how He wants to do it. And Phil says, answer to prayer. I said, I didn't say, I was, well, did, did, did Benny Hinn come over and like, no, you don't need Benny Hinn. You pray, and God will show mercy or not. And in this case, He showed mercy. In the case of the young gal back in Texas, He showed mercy. And we give God the praise for it. Amen? And this is why we pray for healing. So in saying the things I've said, I in no way am trying to make you think that I don't think God has power and that God can't heal. God can do whatsoever He wants to do when He wants to do it, to whom He wants to do it, and when He wants to do it. Amen?